many of you have jobs where you are require, required to carry credentials and some kind of badge or uh, name tag or something? Okay. Generally, airline workers would probably need credentials. Uh, I would think, Mike, I don't know where you went, but you probably have to have something to get into the labs if, if you're in there. Um, and so many of you have credentials. I, I've always thought it would be pretty cool to have credentials of some kind, but I've, pastors just, we have the Bible, but that, uh, it's not, it's a little different. And, um, but credentials, I, this, just a definition for credentials is, it's documentary evidence that a person has a certain status or privileges. So it's something that shows you that you, you have the right to go where you're, uh, trying to go, you have a right to do what you're trying to do. It's, it's credentials, something to, that gives you that access, that, Shows you have that status, that right, that privilege to be there and to do that. So the only time I can ever remember carrying any kind of credentials was when I was um, uh, the, the, just out of high school. I, um, I spent a summer working at the BGCT, which is the Baptist General Convention of Texas. One of my best friends, his dad was the head of youth ministry for the BGCT and and uh, they went, they were in our church, went to church together. And so there was an opportunity to intern for his dad the summer after I graduated from high school. And it was a great, it was a great opportunity and basically traveled around the state of Texas going to helping with youth camps and things like that. And then, but the highlight of the summer, and I had been many times, but never in this capacity, but the highlight of the summer was, was the, this big statewide youth evangelism conference, YEC, we called it. And, and it was this big rally for, for students from all across the uh, great state of Texas and churches would, would come and bring busloads of students. And it was held at Reunion Arena at the time, which is where the Dallas Mavericks used to play. Um, and so there would be ten to 15,000 students there every summer for these two, I think it was three days, um, this three-day rally. And I didn't have an important job, <laughs> so I, I, it was I don't even remember what I did, but it was a job that that I needed an all-access pass to, and and to me, I thought that was pretty cool, and it really wasn't that cool, but I thought it was. But it meant I could go anywhere in that arena, and I get to go backstage and see things. I got to go, I, just for the fun of it, into the Dallas Mavericks locker room, which I thought I was a big Mavericks fan, so I thought that was cool, and 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 got to meet the the Christian artists and the conference speakers, you know, big names that all of you young people know, like Al Denson and, and uh, yeah, see, somebody laughs, thank you. Uh, Jeff Moore and these people that nobody has a clue who they are. But I, that's, that's about the only time I can ever remember, uh, one of the few times I've ever been credentialed in any way, and that was pretty silly. Um, but here we're going to see Jesus showing his credential. I'll get to that. But last Sunday, last Sunday we started in John chapter 5. We looked at this, this true story of this account of this man who had been crippled and couldn't walk for 38 years of his life. And in an instant, with a word, he's healed by Jesus. And Jesus says, rise, take up your mat and walk. And he does it. Uh, just incredible story. We're, we're praying and laboring in prayer for our brother Dave Huther, and he's been in bed now for three weeks. And 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 we're asking that God would allow him to go home this week and 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 have the strength to do that on Wednesday or Thursday of this week. But but he's having to go undergo much rehab to be able to just walk and to move again after being in bed for three weeks. But for 38 years, this man couldn't move and. 
and instantly muscles are given strength and, and movement and joints are working and he, he has the energy, he has the, the, all of the, the nerve damage is corrected and he can walk. This is an incredible story. And so, uh, verse 9, at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. So this is great, right? And the crowd just went wild. And they carried Jesus through the streets of Jerusalem and, and they, and they said of him, this is the one who pardons all our iniquities and heals all our diseases. Not exactly. That's not what we saw. There's a problem. And it's at the end of verse nine. Now that day was the Sabbath. And you can insert the horror screams right at this point. This gasp. That the man, this healed man did something that was very much taboo. He, he carried something on the Sabbath. Which wasn't allowed. And the religious leaders, they don't, they don't seem to care that this man who's been crippled for 38 years is instantly healed, but they're, they're all in a tizzy that he carries his mat on the Sabbath. And so first they go after the man and they start questioning him and, and they direct their anger at him and say, what are you doing? You can't carry your mat on the Sabbath. Don't you know this? And then the man points them to Jesus as the one who told him to rise and take up your mat and walk. And so then their fury is directed at Christ. And so this is, this is the trigger point for the Jews. Remember we said when John uses that expression, the Jews, he's referring to the Jewish leaders, the Jewish authorities. And, and so you see it in verse 16. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And so this opposition against Christ really begins in earnest here. And, and yet Jesus doesn't retreat. He doesn't turn passive. He doesn't... He doesn't even just sit back and wait to see what happens, what unfolds. No, he, he's, he's intentional about what he does. He knew, he knew exactly what he was doing when he healed this man. He knew exactly what day it was when he healed him. It's all this set up by Christ to bring us to where we're at today. He, he, he's, he wants to labor. He, he takes the initiative, verse 17, to answer them. So you see that in verse 17. But Jesus answered them. And we look at the text and we say, they never questioned him. There was no question that was given. You know, there are many times in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where you see these recorded conversations between Jesus and others, and, and they, they ask Jesus questions, and Jesus said to them, or Jesus answered them, and there's this back and forth. And yet there's something here that's different. There's, there's something hidden behind the English language here that it, it, it's more evident in the Greek language. And I'm not saying you need to know Greek to read your Bible, but this is just something that draws out the beauty of this. In this particular text, when it says that Jesus answered them, the form of that verb is very rare. And the only places that form of the verb is used is in the context of trials, courtroom settings. When, when there's this legal, formal defense that's given against charges that have been brought and made against a person. So what John is saying is Jesus isn't simply answering their questions. That's not it. There is no recorded question. No, what is he doing? He's giving his legal defense before the authorities that are accusing him of things that are worthy of death. 
So he's answering them in that sense. And so having said that, let's let's look at Jesus' defense here that he gives for for justifying himself and and showing that it was okay for him to do what he did on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is, is going to flash his credentials here for us and show us that he has the right, he has the status, he has the privileges to do what he does, to say what he says. That's what he's doing here. In this passage. And this is a huge passage of scripture before us this morning. And I was very ambitious that we were going to cover all the way to verse 47. I mean, that ain't happening. I'm sorry. Uh, how many times have I said this? I know. But we are, we are swimming in deep Christological waters this morning. Christology is just the theology, the study of Jesus Christ. And we get into some great, rich, wonderful truth about the person and work of Jesus this morning. And we'll, we'll, so we're going to spread this out over a couple of weeks. And this, because it demands more time, more attention than we could possibly uh, give it this morning. But we're going to, we're going to make, make progress. And so let's look at Jesus' credentials together. First thing that we'll see is, is I want you to notice the claims that Jesus makes. The claims that he makes. Verse 16 to 22 here. But, so the Jews persecute Jesus because he does these things on the Sabbath. And so how is, how is Jesus going to answer that? Is he going to try to diffuse the situation? Try to kind of play play it down? Well, you know, and, and, and assure them that his intention wasn't to violate the Sabbath. That wasn't it. And try to ease some of their concerns. They're clearly upset by this, and so he, he doesn't want he doesn't want to aggravate them and help them to help them to see that yes, this is yes, I know this was a violation, but this is great. And so he's not trying to. Is he trying to prop up the importance of this man's healing? That's not what he does at all. He doesn't care about any of that. There's this open flame of their fury against him, and he just throws gas on it. Verse 17. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Now, that may not sound like gas on an open flame, but it is. Jesus says, My father. They know he's not talking about Joseph. They know exactly who he's talking about. They know exactly what claim he's making here. It is crystal clear. They get it. And the first claim that Jesus makes is God is his father. God is his father. My father is working until now. And I am working. Verse 18. This is this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath. But he was calling him. He was even calling God his own father. So he's, he's claiming to be the unique son of God and that he also is working in the family business. My father's working and I am working with him. What's Jesus saying here? Why is he, why does he go here? We're talking about Sabbath. Why does he go to the father and working with the father? What's he, what's the point that he's making here? Well, this understanding the Sabbath helps us here that God created everything that is, everything that exists in six days. And the scriptures say in Genesis 2 that on the seventh day he rested. And so that set forth the pattern for God's people and God's covenant people to rest every seventh day on the Sabbath. Last day of the week. But when the Bible says that on the seventh day God rested, that doesn't mean that God ceased being active. Not that he just kicked his heels up and... Turn passive all of a sudden. That's not it at all. And there are those that have believed that throughout history. And maybe, and there are people that believe this today. We, we often call them deists. And, and 
particularly even early on in this nation, there were many deists and they had this view of God that God was kind of like this great watchmaker in the sky. And so so he formed the universe and he he established the laws of the universe. And so he he he, like a clock, he fixed the gears and he and he wound it up and he stepped out of the picture and allowed the clock to just run on its own. he, He got everything in place and then. Step back and, and, it, and it goes. That's not the biblical view of God or of creation. Whatever God creates, He actively sustains. He holds it together. He doesn't just bring it into existence. He preserves it and He maintains it. That's why there's still a world. If for just one nanosecond, God took a break and turned passive, we would just cease to exist. He upholds all things by the word of His power. It's in Him that we live and move and have our being. There's not a moment, not the tiniest little moment where God is not active in sustaining all creation. And so, but, but this is, this is not the way we think today. There's, there's this naturalistic view of, of the world and of science that, that has even crept into the church today, but it influences us. And, and it's this view that says nature operates on its own steam by its own power. And, and maybe, maybe, and, and it may have some kind of debt to God in its origin that God created it and God kind of set it all in motion. But, but why do we need them now? Everything's running fine. Everything just is running like clockwork. And, and again, this has pervaded the church, and it, it, it may not show up in those kind of claims like that, but it shows up in how we think. We have tragedies that strike in our lives, and uh, your, a teenage son is killed in a car accident. Say, where was God? Where was God in that? 9-11, where was God? Whatever year you put that. Where, where was He? And, and behind that question is this thought, this erroneous thought that God... He must have been taking a nap. He must have clocked out. He, he, he must have been uninvolved with human affairs. That's just not reality. Jesus is telling His people, that's not who God is. He says, my Father is working. Always working. He doesn't, he doesn't take a day off. He's always working, and I am working too. Jews knew exactly, again, what Jesus meant with his turn of the phrase when he says, my father. So you see it at the end of, of, um, of verse 18, that, that he's, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So he's saying God is his father, and he's secondly he's saying God or, that the father is his equal. He's making himself equal with God. With, and with that, with that uh, claim... There are these murderous thoughts that just flood into the minds of these Jewish leaders. And it's not going to stop until he's crucified. This is, this is the trigger again. And, but, but rather than again, rather than trying to soothe their concerns and deny their suspicions and kind of, kind of play this down, Jesus just pushes it even further and he makes his claims even clearer. Look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, and, and don't miss these little, I know we read this expression so often, and we're going to read it three times in our text today. Truly, truly, I say to you, saying is, get this. Catch what I'm about to say. Do not miss the importance of what I'm saying. This is truth. 
The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And so, so yes, Jesus is saying, God is my Father, and that makes me equal with the Father. But this is not that Jesus is equal with the Father like He's some kind of rival deity. Like they're doing this parallel work. There's God the Father and He's doing His thing. Here I'm doing my thing. That's not it at all. He's equal by virtue of this unique, eternal, mysterious oneness between Father and Son. This is, again, we, 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 we love the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is wonderful truth and is, is just comfort to our souls. But this was pure blasphemy in the ears of these Jews. They cut their religious teeth from the, from infancy. On, on Deuteronomy 6-4, the Lord is one. They, they had no concept of, of any diversity within God. The Lord is one. So, so we, we can expect almost, we can understand this reaction of, of, of theirs against Jesus. But Jesus, what is he doing? He's opened the wind, opening the window for them and to us. Just pulling back and letting us see the very nature of our triune God. Something that until this point wasn't, it was revealed, but it wasn't clearly revealed. And so what was, what was somewhat shadowy in the Old Testament, and it's now being made clear by Jesus, who is God incarnate. The three and oneness of God. And that's what we mean when we say the Trinity. Maybe that's a new word to you. Maybe you've heard it, but you're not exactly sure what that means. Let me just state it simply. And it is profound mystery. And we don't understand exactly how it works. But we know what God has revealed of himself. And we believe that it's true. And it's this, is that there is one God. There is one God. But he is, that one God exists eternally in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's unity within God. There's diversity within God. Three persons. And each of those persons though is fully God. So it's not that God has been sliced up into three pieces of pie. He is one God. Again eternally existing. Three persons. Each person fully God. That's what we're saying. That's what the scriptures reveal about God. And and. And we see, again, we see through the progress of Revelation throughout Scripture, Howard, our founding pastor, Howard Dial, he, he's used this analogy years ago when he taught on the Trinity, and it's just stuck with me. I think it's a great picture. You see the folded uh, American flag, if you go to a funeral of a, a war veteran or something like that, you see that, that flag that they fold up and, and give to the, 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 the uh, widow um, you, you know what that is. You can tell that it's an American flag. There are, there are, you see the stars, you see the colors, you, you know what it is, but you can't see it in its fullness. Well, that's, that's the Trinity in the Old Testament. You see it, but you don't see it in its, in its breadth and its clarity. And then you get to the New Testament and the flag is unfurled and we see it all. And we see its beauty and we see its richness and we see its picture. And that's what we have. Jesus is unfolding it right in front of their eyes. It's helping them see it. Again, this is, these are deep waters, church. Hang with me. This is a rough day, I know, to go here. Uh, but uh, get a sip of coffee if you've got some, or take your neighbors, and, and let's keep moving here. Now, now, it, so, now, it's one thing to make a claim like this. I'm God. I'm equal with God. 
God is, is my father in a unique way in which he's not your father. It's one thing to make that claim. There are state mental institutions full of people who say things like that. But it's a very different matter to prove that. And this is exactly what Jesus goes on to say. He, he, he lays claim to two rights, to two privileges that belong to God alone. And we're not going to be able to linger here, but we'll, this will continue to come back in this passage. Verse, verse 20. And greater works than these he will, will, he, will he show them so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. So these two things that only God has the prerogative to do. Raise the dead and judge. Jesus says, this is what I do. The Father has given this to me. So he's, he's, again, he's just pressing the point even further. He's making these claims, showing them who he is. What, what do you think of Jesus' claims? I, I don't know everybody here. I don't know what you're thinking. You may have walked in and first time in a, through the doors of a church, or you may have grown up in the church, but you're still skeptical. I mean, are you skeptical? Are you, are you curious? Are you angered by what? Saying what, what you what you're reading here in John, what are you gonna, what are you going to do with these claims of Christ? How are, you, how are you going to respond to them? I don't know how you will respond. There is mixed response to Jesus' claims in Scripture and in in our experience. But I know how we're supposed to respond because Jesus tells us he, that's the next thing he shows us is how should we respond to these claims of Jesus, and that's the next thing he says is. And that's what I want us to do. Is see the response that Jesus requires. See the response that Christ requires. And he has every, every right to command whatever he, response he wants of us. If, if It's perfectly consistent with his claim to be God to demand any kind of response from us. And this is what he does. Verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son... Why? That all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. And that's the first supreme call that Jesus gives to us. How do we respond? It's worship. It's worship. That all would honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. The Father and the Son, they share the same divine nature, so they deserve the same adoration from His people. Now, Again, we read this and it doesn't make us uncomfortable. Those who are in Christ, you, you love this truth. But I can imagine Jesus' disciples starting to shift uncomfortably at this point. What are you saying, Jesus? Stop talking, please. As the, as the, as the, that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. And I can just kind of picture them physically just taking Small steps back away from Jesus, trying to kind of retreat into the shadows here. Because they're not ready for this. They're not ready to bow down before their master, Jesus. They get there. After the resurrection, they're there. I mean, even Thomas, doubting Thomas, my Lord and my God. And so this is where John is moving. This is where the whole gospel account is moving to that direction. But but this is this is the response that Jesus requires, demands, is... This should be our response as well. And when, whenever you're brought face to face with Jesus, we, we tend to move from skepticism to, to wonder and then to worship. And that's, that's where we need to be. 
But that's the first response. Worship. Second is to listen. Listen. That Jesus requires us that people truly listen to him. To hear his words. That's the, that's the word hear. Um, and, and hear means more than just simply sound waves kind of reverberating through our ears. And where we can make sense of them and distinguish sounds and, and words and language. I don't know how the ear works. Uh, uh, but but that's that's not that's not the extent of what Jesus is saying. The, the the Jewish authorities clearly heard Jesus. They heard him. They they knew exactly what he was saying. In fact, it was their careful hearing that got them so agitated by what they were hearing. They were listening intently. They were they were they, and that's what fueled the intensity of their persecution of Jesus. But they refused to truly hear Jesus, hear his words, to accept them. That's what that's what we're talking about here. We we use that expression. I hear you, man. What we're saying is I agree. I understand what you're saying. I agree. Accept what you're saying. And so I think that's the, that's the connotation here. We need to hear. We need to believe. And that and that 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 response is closely connected and inseparably connected, really, to this third response, and that's a faith to believe. Truly, truly. Again, here it is again. Truly, truly. Get this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's a great, as Mike alluded to, I'm grateful that he shared that little story from his own conversion story. That this is one of those passages that God used to grip his heart. We have to believe in Christ. It's those who have eternal life. And it's interesting here, it's not just faith in Jesus that he demands, faith in himself, but he, he, he says that it's also faith in him who sent me. Verse 24 there. So if the Jews responded to Jesus by believing in him, by accepting, accepting what he said, they would not be betraying, they would not be betraying their allegiance to the God of their fathers. That's what he's showing us here. And to not believe in what Jesus was saying would mean that they didn't truly believe in God. So he's saying, here are my words. Believe him who sent me. You cannot have God without Jesus. And you cannot have Jesus apart from his words. What, what, what you must believe in Jesus as he has revealed himself. It's not enough to, to believe in the Jesus of our own imagination. We need to believe in the Christ of history and of scripture. As he's revealed what he's spoken about himself. The claims that he's made about himself. We'll say more about this next week. But I just would, would say here. this or It won't be next week actually. It's going to be several weeks. Because we're going to take a little break. Um, starting next week. But th- this is still the same response we need to have to Jesus. Worship. Listening. Hearing. And faith. It's still response Jesus demands. We we said when we began this series through John, there were a couple goals that I mentioned and stated at the beginning and have continued to pray for these, and I've added others to them as I've prayed for you, prayed for my own self and, and for this flock as we work our way through John. And one is that, that we'll have an increased passion for the name of Christ. That we will... That Christ will seem bigger and bigger to us and more precious to us with every verse that we read and study together through the Gospel of John. That our minds will just be blown with the, by the enormity of Jesus Christ. That, we'll, that we will be just compelled to worship Him, to adore Him, to, to exalt Him together. And secondly, that we'll believe more deeply in Jesus each week. 
And, and that, that by that, that many will believe in Christ for the first time through our witness as we, as our hearts are excited by the, the glories of Jesus Christ, the salvation that is offered through Him, that we will be more quick and bold in proclaiming Christ and that many will be saved through our witness and and I just say we've got Easter coming up and what a great opportunity again to invite neighbors and co-workers and classmates, young people to, to be here on Easter Sunday as the gospel is laid forth, the resurrection is proclaimed. And so I would encourage you to do that. But but that's one thing to that people will believe for the first time, but also that for those who are in Christ, that our faith, our confidence in Christ will grow every every week we're in John. Studying this, that, that as we see Jesus again, we'll believe in Him and have life in His name. And that brings us to the next thing that we see. As Jesus shows His credentials, we see His claims, we see His claims, we see the response that He requires, and we see the promises that He makes. We'll see how far we can get here. But the claims of Jesus are essential because the promises He makes are so great. I mean, I can promise you anything you want me to promise you, but but I I, I don't have the power to, to bring it about. But here, if Jesus is who He says He is, then His promises are secure, and we can count we can count on them. Verse twenty four again, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. That's the first promise: is life now, life now. He doesn't say will have, could have, should have, might possibly have. No, he says he has eternal life. This is a present possession of those who have believed in Christ. And this life, as we've noted throughout John, it's more than just physical life. That's, that's not it. And it, it's, a, it's a different kind of life. It's eternal life. And that means more than just everlasting life. It's talking about more than simply duration, that it goes on and on and on for eternity. That's part of it. That's true. But it's more than that. It's, it's the quality that's it's emphasized here. It's the richness, the fullness, the beauty of life in Christ. This is eternal life as John uses this expression in his gospel. And so this life begins here though. It begins now, not after you, you die. So it's life now. Whoever believes and him who sent me has eternal life. That's another one of the stated goals for this series again. It's that, that we will experience more of the abundant life that Jesus offers. That we won't live half-hearted lives and, 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 and just kind of exist and, and just be, drift along in the, in the Christian faith holding to orthodox doctrine but not, not having the, this spring of life exploding from us. From, from our love and devotion to Jesus Christ. And so, we can have now this eternal, abundant life, joy inexpressible and full of glory. Is that what characterizes your life right now? Is, is, that, is that you? Is, if you could wear a, some kind of spiritual heart monitor throughout the week, what would it record? Just kind of this faint little tick? Or is, it, is there vibrancy there? Now again, let me just say, that's what God wants for you. But if you've believed in Christ, you have eternal life. Now, are you living in that? Are you reveling in that? Are you experiencing the fullness of that? I think that's where we need to, we all need to grow. And it's that that compels us and sends us out to leverage our lives for the sake of the gospel. Wherever God sent us. So verse 24, the end of verse 24 
So whoever believes in Him who sent me has eternal life. He, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Again, has passed already. May not always feel like it, but it's true for the believer. And then again, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, get this. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And these these verbs are very important. The dead He's talking about here are not the physical dead. This isn't the future resurrection of our bodies. This is the the present resurrection of our souls. That, That He says the hour is now here. Dead people all around us. We are those dead people who have heard the voice of Jesus and have lived. That's what He's talking about here. The spiritually dead are made alive, spiritually alive by Christ. He has that authority to give new birth, to to make spiritually dead people alive. And when people respond in faith to Christ, that's what He does. He gives life. And so those who've trusted in Christ, they they, they know this life that Jesus gives, and they have then no reason to fear coming judgment. So he goes from now, this spiritual resurrection that Christ brings, that he has the authority to cause the dead to live now, the souls. But he looks then to that future day of resurrection when the body is resurrected. Jesus has authority then too. And that's the second promise, life to come. Verse 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when, when, okay, now we're talking future, when all of the, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So he's speaking of this future day when, when he will judge. And he points to the day when all of the dead of, of history, all humanity, will be raised to life. Some to everlasting life, some to everlasting condemnation. Now what's interesting, and you get in verse 28 and 29, and it may sound a little confusing. Because he says if we, if we do good, we get life. If we do evil, we get judgment and death. You see that in verse 28 29? sounds so contrary to everything else we've looked at in the Gospel of John and will look at. To the whole New Testament. Because are, are we saved by faith alone? Not, not good works. Is it, is eternal, isn't eternal life a gift we receive by faith? Not something we, we earn by doing good or forfeit by evil? Well, John's Gospel, if, if anywhere else, again, it's, it's just, we're saved by faith alone. That's the only condition for eternal life. So what's going on? Well... I had to be brief, but as John writes, as we see then in his, in this gospel account, we see it in his New Testament epistles, he writes with these absolutes many times. It's, it's light and dark. It's, it's death. It's life. It's good. It's evil. It's hate. It's, uh, it's love. It's hate. It's belief. It's unbelief. And there are others. But there, and he's saying here, those who, those who have done good, when he uses that expression, he's using it as this absolute statement. It doesn't mean these people have done more good than bad. It's not that they, that scales are just slightly tipped to the side of good or that they've done more good than other people have done good. That's not, that's not what he's talking about. It's an absolute statement. They have done good, only good. 
No, no evil, no mixture of evil in that statement that he says for those that will be resurrected to life. It's only good. And, he, and, and the same is true for those who've done evil. There's no mention of good at all in that mix. It's just absolute statements. Those who've done good or those who've done evil. That's the dividing line. And what is, so what is Jesus saying? Well, I think this is what he's saying. Is that from the vantage point of heaven, God, God simply refuses to bring any charges against those who've believed in Jesus. As far as the believer's situation is concerned, he is simply one who does good. Only good. Why, why is that true? Because all charges that are brought against us have been taken upon Christ. They will be when he dies. And God, God will declare himself satisfied with, with the just punishment for our substitute for Jesus. And he, he nail all of our evil deeds to the cross and as Christ dies for them. And so you'll get to Romans 8, chapter 33 and 34. Who, who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who declares righteous. It, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So God does not condemn believers. He will not. And that's a great promise that Christ is offering here. Saying, there's life now and there's life to come. Guaranteed life to come. There is no, you are exempt from condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. He will bring no charge against you on that day. It will only be good. There's an Old Testament illustration of this. And and I, this will lead us right into the Lord's table. And so we'll go there right after this. But back in the days when when Israel was led out of Egypt and heading toward the promised land. And they came up the east side of the Jordan River into the plains of Moab there. And there were, and there were one of the rulers in the area there, they, he hired a prophet to, to speak against Israel, a man named Balaam. And he hired this prophet named Balaam to curse Israel. And so even though Balaam is this kind of money-loving rascal, he can be bought, his allegiance can be bought, he still... At the moment of truth, he, he can't bring himself to curse Israel. And so he speaks as he, he looks down on the camp of Israel and, and it's in Numbers chapter 23. And he looks down on the camp of Israel and he's, he's looking down on this group of people who've sinned over and over and over again. I mean, this is this is they've got the picture in the dictionary of Israel right next to the word sin. They've sinned in unbelief at the Red Sea. They sinned in complaining against God, how he provided for them in the wilderness. They've sinned in, in, in all kinds of immorality with the pagans of the land that they're traveling through. Sin, sin, sin. That was a problem. Their record was awful. But Balaam here is hired to curse the people because of their sin. And, and yet when he looks down on them, as a prophet should, he takes God's perspective on Israel. Because they're God's people, Balaam prophesies in Numbers 23, verse 21. He has not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Nor has he seen wickedness or trouble in Israel. Now, it's not that, again, it's not that wickedness was absent from Israel. That's not it at all. It's that God chose not to observe it. He's not seen it. He's not beheld it. He, he's refused to entertain these charges against Israel. Because of his promise. The same is true for those who believe in Jesus. It's not that we don't sin. It's not that we don't have evil, awful, bad deeds. 
We do. Oh, boy, do we. But, but God simply will not look at the iniquity of a believer in Jesus. As far as he's concerned, it has all been erased at the cross. And that's why we, that's why we come and we celebrate at the table. That, that, that he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So all our sin is laid upon Christ when he suffered in our place on the cross and he, he, he absorbed all of the wrath of God for all of our wrongdoings, all of our evil deeds, all the, the wrong that we've done. He took that upon himself and then through Christ, through Christ, his, through faith in Christ, his perfect record of righteousness, all of his, his, he who was without sin, God credits His record of perfect righteousness to our account. He imputes that to us so that when God looks at you, brother and sister, if you're in Christ, He looks at you and He sees righteousness. Righteous. He sees Christ's righteousness in you. And He treats us accordingly. This is just the beginning of Christ's defense, and it's going to go on and on, not just for a few verses, but really for the next few chapters. I know, again, these are heavy, heavy things, deep waters. But I pray that just as we've, as we've begun to look at this, that, that, that it provokes in your heart gratitude and adoration for Jesus Christ. And we're going to now just continue on with that as we come to the table. So let me pray for us. Father, I, I pray, God, that you would prepare our hearts, Lord, to to see Christ, to remember Him together. This is not something we just, we, we, we even close in on ourselves. This is not just where we're, 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 we're um, turned in on ourselves, looking at ourselves. It's not about us and our personal lives. This is something we do together in community. We eat and drink together. And it's something we do by casting our eyes, not on us, but upon Christ. The goal, the, the, the focus of this table is Jesus, is to remember Him. So help us, Lord, to to look to, to delight in Jesus Christ as we come and we eat and we drink together. Amen.